Welcome to another episode of This is Revolution. My The host for today is uh, Varn of Varn Vlog. Good to see you, Varn. Hi. I get to be Jason today. So it's what we all want. Deep down and we know I'm not Jason because uh, we started on time. Ooh. Ouch. Ouch. All right. Do you want to just jump in? Sure. Okay. Today we have Ben Ben Fong, Benjamin Fong, as we have it written out here. He is the host of a new podcast from Jacobin called Organize the Unorganized. And uh, we're going to bring him in so he can talk about it. Hi, Ben. How's it going? Hey, how's it going? Thanks so much for having me. Good to see you. You too. Thanks. Well, you can't see Hello. me. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Barn? We both Hi, listen to and it. So, Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, we both listen to the, the current episodes available of Organizing Disorganized, this uh, podcast that you have begun with Jacobin. And... Um, I guess I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit about why talk about the history of the CIO right now? Like, why is this a pressing issue for the current left? I mean, I agree that it is. That's not a skeptical question, but I do think it needs to be stated before we really get into the substance here. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, if we're, if we're looking for a kind of historical precedent for organizing millions of uh, private sector workers in particular into the labor movement, there's really one time to look to. Uh, you know, there's been moments of periodic upsurge in America. Most uh, most of those have been fairly fleeting, thinking in particular of uh, the, the dramatic growth of the Knights of Labor in 1886. Um, you know, there's a huge uh, uptick in labor activity um, uh, in around like the turn of the century with a the AFL organizing. Uh, then again, uh, during and in the immediate aftermath of World War One, um, and then there's the the sort of 1960s and 70s public sector unionism surge, but that was really a different kind of sector than the, the CIO was engaged with. Um, the CIO moment, the late 30s, early 40s, this was a time when millions of workers, private sector workers, joined the labor movement, and the key um, corporations of the time, GM, U.S. Steel. Uh, were were organized. I mean, before that, the big, the core industries in America, steel, rubber, auto, electrical manufacturing, all these things were unorganized. And very quickly, uh, in the space of a few years, um, those sectors became almost 100% unionized, and that had knock-on effects for other industries and in raising wages and, um, you know, creating like what we know as the prosperity of the post-war period. Um, it's a little worse today, actually, than it was then. Uh, public sector unionism was not yet legal, and so the 10%, so in the 1930s, before um, before the, the Great Depression and the, and the, and the CIO, uh, union density was around 10%, but that was 10% private sector, which is kind of a better situation than we're in now. Today, private sector union density is down to about 6%, I think. Uh, we're about to get the latest BLS numbers in a couple days now, and... Uh, you know, as exciting as 2023 was in terms of labor activity, I wouldn't be surprised if that number is more depressing than we'd like to think it would, would be. Um, 
so uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, similarities there, a lot of differences as well. And in any event, if we're looking for inspiration for the present moment, I think it's the best time to look to. I think your your reason to be skeptical in the numbers uh, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics is actually pretty sound. The last couple of years, we've seen a lot of uptick in labor actions. We've actually seen a decrease in union density, and that's a reversal of even, say, 10 years ago, where there was a mild, very mild increase of union density, but mostly in public sector workers. Yeah. Um, I mean, and if we really look at the public sector worker stats, it gets a little bit more concerning since the largest unions are still the police unions. So it's uh, <laughs> there are reasons to be to be to point out that we're actually in a worse situation than we were in the beginning of the of the CIO. Yeah, for, for those right. who are who are new to the history of labor, though, um, can we describe I mean, you mentioned the nice of labor in the AFL. Um, people are going to bring up the the, the early IWW too. Um, can we talk about the uh, the CIOs different from the Knights of Labor and the AFL and maybe even the IWW? Sure, just just quickly about the uh, about the previous point in terms of differences. I think one other key difference between well, there's a lot of differences. Uh, and I think that there would be some historians who would argue that the conditions of the emergence of the CIO are so different than the present moment, that it's almost non-applicable uh, as a historical example. So I should just throw that out there as well. I think I disagree with that, obviously. Uh, I think that there's there are some organizational political lessons to be drawn from the moment. Um, but to get to, uh, oh, actually, sorry, one, one way in which uh, it was different is just that labor law today tends to channel labor activity in very particular and conscripted ways. So in the 1930s, this was a moment where, um, you know, thanks to the 1932 Norris LaGuardia Act and uh, and then the Wagner Act and just a sort of general willingness to push the boundaries of what labor was willing to do, there was widespread disruption. And I think that's part of what made possible uh, the CIO moment that labor, activi labor activists were willing to push the boundaries of the acceptable. And today, given the very constrained NLRB process, which I think most like labor law experts and labor historians recognize is fairly broken, um, given that it tends to channel labor activism into uh, recognition elections, union certification drives, and um, for, for good reason, if you can get a contract through those means, it's generally a good thing. It's just that it's become so harrowing a process for so many people that it's almost not not worth the effort in a lot of cases. And so it's a, it's a different time in terms of just like the way in which labor activism is is directed. Um, but to get to your your uh, last question. So um, the American Federation of Labor was the dominant labor federation um, starting in the late 1880s. Um, in a way, it emerged as a rival to the Knights of Labor. The Knights of Labor won this uh, uh, huge uh, rail strike, I think it was in 1886. And as a result of that, and as, as a result of a lot of radicals in their ranks, um, they, they grew pretty dramatically. I mean, I think they grew to a membership of almost a million people within the space of a year. It was, it was, it was a very dramatic uh, growth. Um, organizationally, the Knights of Labor couldn't hold it together. So there there were a, a lot of um, egalitarian impulses within the organization, but at the very top, it was really floundering. Um, I'm forgetting his name, Terrence. Um, 
the head of the Knights of Labor. Um, I'm forgetting his, forgetting his name now. Uh, but in any event, the Knights of Labor had this spectacular rise and then just as spectacular fall. It just didn't hold together organizationally. And the lesson for people like Samuel Gompers and the people who founded the, the AFL was that you needed some stable um, uh, business form for unionism. You needed to channel it in a particular form that had leverage and power and sustainability. Uh, if you didn't have that, then you'd have these upsurges and then uh, and then and then fall fall away. So um, so with the AFL, you know, they they focus particularly on craft workers, people who had particular skills in their industries. Um, they were predominantly a uh, racist and exclusionary organization, sort of by default, right? They focused on what used to be called old stock Americans and organizing them. And so were, uh, you know, very anti-immigrant, um, did not organize uh, black people, did not organize um, uh, Chinese people. They um, were, were actively hostile to both. And so they they formed a, a labor movement that was um, almost purposefully self-limiting. Right? They wanted a labor movement that was just for skilled workers. And, um, you know, it, it was it was successful for what it was. Uh, Samuel, Samuel Gompers, the, the head of the AFL, liked to talk about pure and simple unionism. Right. Like, don't get involved in politics, although the AFL did get involved in politics here and there. Um, you know, don't uh, don't raise like broader social justice issues, focus uh, on uh, industry contracts, craft industry contracts and, um, you know, take care of your, your members. That was essentially the model. And um, it wasn't particularly successful in growing the labor mov movement, but it was successful in uh, maintaining that staying power. And so from the 1880s, really up until the 1930s, when the CIO broke off, it it uh, you know it it was growing at times. Uh, it was fairly stable. Its members could rely upon it, and I think that that's part of what accounts for the staying power of the AFL. Just that it did work for the people who were involved in it, and long past the point when it made sense uh, as uh, something applicable to the economic situation of the United States people were still defending it to the death, right? They were still defending the jurisdictional claims of different craft unions, despite the fact that they made almost no sense in the new mass production industries, right? The key, the key um, uh, corporations of, of, of America were, um, were not organized on a craft basis, right? This, this idea of itinerant workers going from town to town with particular skills and bringing those skills along and needing to maintain their membership in the craft unions in order to maintain certain standards of living, well, you know, you, 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 with, with a rapid industrialization and these new mass production factories, um, that didn't really make sense of a lot of people's work situations. And so um, the AFL model, it was very powerful for the people who were attached to it. Um, but by the 1930s, it had just become clearly outmoded. Um, just quickly with regard to the IWW, um, it's an interesting relationship there. I'm surprised that more hasn't been written about the CIO's relationship to the IWW, IWW, sorry. I think that a lot of the key organizers of the CIO were clearly inspired by the IWW. Some had been directly involved with it as well. I think the key difference though is this. The, the IWW was, um, you know, they, they privileged the capacity for disruption um, above, above other things. And so when the CIO came along, and especially after the Wagner Act, 
everyone, uh, and that goes uh, from John L. Lewis, the head of the CIO, to, um, you know, communist organizers in Ohio, everyone agreed that the point of all this disruption was to channel it into stable contracts, to channel it into modern collective bargaining. And that was something that the IWW is not committed to, is not committed to contract sanctity in the same way. And so when the CIO moment rolls around, they say, we do not want to do what the IWW did. Like, like, okay, sure, we'll allow radicals in here and there, but we don't want to just privilege disruption. We don't want to fight just to fight. We want contracts. And we're in a political moment where that's possible to get them. And so I think that's the key difference, really, between the IWW and the CIO, despite the fact that they drew inspiration from that earlier moment, they largely renounced the goals of uh, just, you know, disruption and uh, and privileging that sort of what you could call more romanticized aspect of working class activism. Hmm. Um, I, th I think it's it's interesting to compare the IWW to the CAO for for that reason, although. I can tell you what the IWW would say about the CIO in response sure. to that. <laughs> and uh, that is because that is the concessions made to keep those contracts put you in a bad situation in the 1950s. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but I, I think it's important to like note how many people involved in the CIO kind of came out of the IWW. And a lot of them came through uh, the explicitly communist organization around the TUEL and the TUUL. Um, and, uh, but I think it's also interesting to talk about labor law. You made a point about the AFL and the, and the craft union structure. Uh, I think people don't often understand craft and guild unionism today. Yeah. Uh, we understand guild unionism a little bit because we know how like the electricians union worked, et cetera. But the, the crafts within the industry and the problems of that, I think we're, we're, we're kind of made obvious again in the railroad situation you know about two years ago because for reasons having to do with national industry and national security railroads are exempt from the national labor relations act yeah and so they are still organized along afl lines not along you know later lines of the cao and, and post wagner act uh kind of situations and that is clearly a problem <laughs> like uh it it really weakens their ability to act um yeah. so i think that's that's a crucial point and for people who don't know why it still matters today well that's one of the reasons um so you know can we talk a little bit about john lewis and the cio's rise like wh what role did uh lewis particularly play how did they really start to split from the afl and and uh you know what was what was there a, how were they able to leverage the situation in the 1930s in the way that other groups were just not able to including other groups that we mentioned like the iww and the tuel um i'll come back to lewis in a second i just want to make a quick comment about craft unionism um mm -hmm. because I, I i agree i think that the the reasons for and limitations of craft unions are not always appreciated for what they are and uh especially in the first episode and this is something that a lot of my guests emphasize uh to, just to be clear the podcast is not is not much of me it's mostly uh, uh labor historians and experts who i've interviewed it's archival clips it's songs and so uh it's, it's a lot of different perspectives put into one one podcast 
And, and one thing um, a lot of people emphasize, actually to a degree that kind of surprised me, uh, was the was the respect they had for the craft model. They said that it made a certain sense and that, um, you know, if you're just being sober about what works for 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 organized labor, you have to recognize that skill, particular skills are um, are a key source of leverage. And, um, you know, what happened with the organization of mass production industries is that a new a new point of leverage, a new sort of um, complex network of points of leverage came about that could be take take, taken advantage of. And so the CIO was very um, was very smart about thinking about, okay, these mass production workers, right, they don't have any particular skills. Yes, it's hard work. But, um, you know, you're not just dealing with like tool and die makers who are very skilled people. You're dealing with people who, you know, you can retrain within the space of a week or so. And so who are fairly dispensable. Well, that doesn't offer you a lot of power in the in the labor market. Right. And so they had to understand the particular ways in which these new industries were put together so as to have what was called you know, by a lot of people power at the point of production. right? The ability to shut things down so that. Um, so that like the, the factories couldn't run. Um, well, you know, in a deindustrialized economy, you kind of lose that, that, that power, um, the disruptive capacity occupying factories and whatnot, shutting things down at your workplace. It's not quite as impactful, especially if you're not targeting things like, you know, the motor facilities at GM and whatnot. Um, skill by contrast offers a pretty reliable source of power. If you have skills it is really tempting for labor people to focus on that and that alone. You still see that like in the, in the, in the disjunction between healthcare unions and nurses unions, right? Nurses unions are very protective over nurses. Nurses are extremely valuable, of course, and that's why they have that power. But the NNU, it's essentially a craft union, right? They're, they operate along craft models. They, they, they think that the, the people who are their members have power because of their particular skills in the labor market not because they can shut things down at the point of production. And so that tension is still very much with us. Um, and, but I think it's a legitimate one, right? Like if you're, if you're not going to be able to shut things down at the point of production, if you're not able to you know, occupy Chevy plant number four and shut things down, well, you need to have some other point of leverage. And I think that that, that underlying logic of craft unionism will never go away so long as people have certain skills that can be exploited in that way. All right. Sorry. Long digression about craft unionism. Uh, John O. Lewis, uh, he was the head of the mine, mine, uh, mine workers union for a long time. He was generally recognized to be a dictatorial and autocratic guy. He did not run a democratic union. He was brutal in the 1920s. A lot of the people who came to work for the CIO later, he had kicked out of the mine workers in the 1920s. Um, he was, uh, you know, as basically all of my guests said, he was interested in power and power alone. And, um, you know, was very effective at at wielding it. And in the 1920s, um, you know, because of um, various changes in the economy, uh, one part of the coal industry, the bituminous coal industry was, you know, dying, essentially. Um, uh, there were there were lots of changes that weren't really conducive to the mine workers organizing in the 20s. And so in addition to being autocratic um and yeah i mean just just really brutal within the union uh the union was also shrinking and so by the time the great depression hits the umwa is is really decimated um this all changes in 1933 um uh, lewis had been very instrumental in pushing for section 7a of the national industrial recovery act which um you know promised the workers promised workers the right to 
uh, organize and collectively bargain. It was largely um, a symbolic gesture in the NIRA, um, but it, it offered uh, some means of organizing. So Lewis and the miners went out into the coal fields and they said, hey, the president wants you to join a union. Come sign up for the for the mine workers union. And by and large, they did. And um, and thanks to the NIRA, they organized uh, the 1933 coal contract, which covered, you know, most of the industry. It was it was uh, the, the coal. The coal code was something they had sought basically since their founding in 1890. And um, and they won it. And all of a sudden, the UMWA was huge. It was like, you know, 600,000 members. Um, and that changed things. And Lewis said, look, like everyone should be doing this right now. This is a completely unique political economic situation. We've got this radial crisis in the Great Depression, and we've got an administration that is not great, <laughs> but um, but they're at least willing to listen, right? And they're, they understand the need for some kind of broad changes. And, you know, liberals are different than they were today. They're more like plugged into reality. They understood that industrial capitalism had its failings. And so they were open to um, unions in a way that they hadn't been before. And Lewis took advantage and he was still a, an autocratic guy. He was still a pain to deal with, but he recognized the moment and he broke away from the AFL in 1935. It was actually a fairly dramatic break. He supposedly jumped over a row of chairs uh, on the floor of the 1935 AFL convention to punch the Carpenters President Union in the face and then um, and then formed the, the CIO and they began organizing rubber, auto, steel and succeeded remarkably in a very short amount of time. So I, th there's two themes that, that come up to me as we're discussing, and I think we're going to be torn between talking about now and talking about the past. And that's yeah. also that's part of the nature of your podcast. Yeah. But um, I wanted to zoom in on your point about craft and guild unions, because one of the things I think that you, you make uh, the the one of the points that you make that is hard for us to, to see how to deal with today is the implications of decentralizing, deindustrializing, and, and even franchising the workforce um, and the way guild unions are able to leverage that. So the carpenters union, the electricians union, et cetera. Um, for those of you who don't know, guild unions and craft unions are not exactly the same thing, but they're very close. So, um, and and when we think of unionized workers today and we're not thinking about government workers that that those are the people we think about for the most part unless we like are going back to 50s hard hat nostalgia um there are interesting exceptions um though and some of them are in a kind of liminal space such as you know the auto workers unions which is a broad scale industrial union in the past some might argue today that actually the shift in auto production means that they may be a little bit closer to a craft union than we'd like to admit um, hmm. because it is somewhat skilled labor. It is, it is a smallish industry. Um, if you look at the, uh, the broader movement of the UAW, <clears throat> um, the UAW just base of what it can organize is smaller and it realizes that i mean that's part of why it got into things not related to auto production such as tas um yeah uh but i think that's a i think studying the history of the cao then does present us with a, an interesting problem when we're talking about workplaces today like the, the big union struggles 
of the past 10 years have been Amazon. Okay, so that does kind of look like a, a factory. Uh, Starbucks, which absolutely does not. Um, and uh, the resurgence of teachers unions in red states um, and nurses unions and nursing union strikes. Uh, those those both interestingly do and don't follow the kind of sale model. And the, the part I say where they do is that um, hospitals, schools, police stations um, are still fairly centralized workplaces as opposed to, say, Starbucks, which is, you know, when you're dealing with a Starbucks contract <laughs> and a, a, a local, you might be dealing with um, 50, 60 workers at a time as opposed to 500 or 1,000. Um, so uh, I guess the question becomes, what can we learn from a CIO given the difference of conditions? Yeah, um, there's a there's a great new new book out. I think it was just last year. Um, it was an interview with a historian named John Womack uh, that Peter Olney did uh, called Labor Power and Strategy, and uh, it's got you know reflections on that interview from a lot of like leading sort of labor strategists, uh, Bill Fletcher, Jane McAlevey, et cetera. And um, it's a really interesting interview. And one of the things that Womack says is that, you know, this phrase power at the point of production, which we tend to associate with the CIO, it's um, used somewhat, you know, casually today. Um, but, but what he appreciated about the CIO moment was that it's not just that they were like, okay, like, let's just like, you know, occupy the factories and that'll, that'll win us power. It's rather that they saw the connections in the new production processes. And he thinks that's what what's important. And, you know, he goes back to Wyndham Mortimer's um, autobiography called Organize. Uh, Mortimer was uh, uh, likely, I think, a, a member of the Communist Party. Uh, he, he came up through the UMWA. He was sort of a key organizer in the early UAW. And, um, you know, what Womack notices about Mortimer is that he was like, he's remarkably sophisticated about thinking through like, what were the weaknesses in the points of, in, in the chains of, of production distribution? And so, you know, when the, when the Flint strike was won, for instance, in 1937, they occupied those factories for a long time. And right up until the end, they didn't think they were going to win. Right. I mean, it wouldn't have taken much for Governor Murphy to send in the National Guard and just ruin the whole thing. And all of the things that we think about happening in 1937, including, you know, the dramatic growth of the UAW, as well as the organization of the steelworkers. None of that happens, it seems, without Flint. And it all was made possible by the fact that they staged this, you know, huge distraction in one plant and then. Uh, secretly occupied the motor plant, Chevy plant number four, uh, because they understood that that was, that was the key thing, right? You cannot make cars without motors. And that was the one motor facility in the country. They had studied it. They understood that they, they you know, it was, it was an understanding of the links in production and distribution that made possible the strategic disruption that they needed at that particular moment. We don't have today uh, you know, fixed capital in these huge factories, right? Like, I mean, you could argue for, for Amazon, right? But, you know, if, if JFK 8 <laughs> ever got through that process, right? If they, uh, if for, you know, by some miracle, um, they got a contract, you know, what's going to happen? Like, you, you can move that factory across the street, fire all the workers and, like, not have a union anymore. Like, there are Absolutely. infinite number of ways in which to break unions today. So, you know, the question today is not just flatly applying that model and saying, oh, 
you know, let's let's take over the factories and occupy them. Right. It's it's understanding the uh, the links, the chains in our deindustrialized logistical economy and finding new sources of leverage. And I should say, again, like to go back to the craft and guild discussion, you know, um, the, the AFL should be faulted for what it was, for what it did wrong. And that was a lot, <laughs> a lot. But but what it did right was to understand that. um that skill offers a point of leverage and workers should workers should uh, take advantage of all points of leverage, right? Like we have these romantic ideas about how unions should be organized and how working class people should join together. Well, you know, depending upon your occupation, there's all sorts of different points of leverage that can be sometimes combined, um, sometimes used on their own, sometimes used in some cases, not others. And I think some, variegated understanding of how we organize uh, workers today is, um, is 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 much needed and without just thinking flatly about you know oh this is we don't have those big factories anymore and so uh, it's not applicable well they're understanding the the links in the chain and they were saying you know if there's any point of leverage take advantage of it take advantage I should also say in the CIO moment um, it wasn't just you know disruptive, power at the point of production. They were doing all sorts of really innovative mm-hmm. things. Like for instance, you know, the steel workers are an inter- interesting case because no one really, <laughs> no, no one on the left really cares about the steel workers because they were not a democratic union. They were top down from the beginning, you know, not, not the sort of romanticized new left understanding of unions. Um, but the steel workers, you know, what they did was one, John L. Lewis and Myron Taylor, the head of us steel, <laughs> they sat down for a, for a, a you know a number of meetings at the Willard Hotel, this fancy hotel, and just sort of hammered out terms like between them between themselves, you know, about as top down as as you can get. Um, but they also uh, had a strategy of going in and taking over the company unions. That's not a sexy strategy, you know, like to go in and and try to deal with these obviously compromised institutions. But it worked, right? Like they found a place where workers were getting together and they were able to use the company union structure against itself, really. So there, there was a lot that the CIO did besides just occupy big factories in a dramatic way that led to its success. Yeah, the company unions are an interesting part of U.S. history. They're very brief. But for those of you who don't know, before the National Labor Relations Act, there was an act that allowed the corporations themselves to set up quasi unions that were kind of on a, let's say, a corporatist in the old sense of that word model. So, you know, uh, workers in working in concert with their with their owners in a kind of uh, very, very compromised union. Um, and I think it's important to point out that this, the CAO really did leverage those, try to take those over, get those integrated in. Um, another thing that makes this AO interesting, I mean, John, I bring up, uh, you know, John L. Lewis for a reason, because I think he's one of these people that you can easily make a hero or a villain until you actually study him. And then you realize that, like, oh, this is a very complicated guy who is both very successful. But you're right, comes out, out of an absolutely autocratic union tradition, the kind of people that Marx and Engels called labor aristocrats. Like it's it's there. It, there is a reality to that. Uh, but he was willing to work with like almost anybody. I mean, they were the CIO made for uh, was totally willing to work with the the T U E L, which for people who don't know, that was an explicitly communist or uh, 
orientation. Yeah. And Lewis was not particularly sympathetic to communists. Like it was, um, it, it it was not. He he just seemed to have an everything in the kitchen sink strategy to, yeah. Yeah. uh, to, to to getting the CIO uh, to have a mass base. I mean, um, but. I was going to ask you, so there's that element of the CIO. There's also its kind of complicated relationship to U.S. labor law because it doesn't, it seems to me that uh, Lewis being able to to really break with the AFL um, and form the CIO is tied to the conditions that lead also up to the National Labor Relations Act. So and, and what is the kind of relationship do you see between the CIO and changing labor law in the 1930s? Yeah, I mean, just just real quickly about Lewis. Um, I mean, he was an asshole start to finish. There's like no two ways about it. Like even when he was the champion of labor, he was being awful, awful behind the scenes. And he was actually like quite, you know, I mean, I think that when we think of like good union leaders, we think of. I don't know. I mean, someone like Harry Bridges or someone. I mean, some, someone who, you know, understood, um, you know, understood what it was to be a union leader, but like still felt himself part of the rank and file, like that kind of thing. Right. Lewis was not that at all. Lewis thought of himself as a kind of aristocrat. Like he didn't he didn't interact with other labor leaders. You could argue that he didn't like being a part of the labor movement. <laughs> um, I mean, he really isolated himself in a lot of ways. And so he was. I mean, you know, from one angle, about as bad as a labor leader, leader can be. And I think that we just have to, like, live with that contradiction that, like, despite that fact, he was still able to see an opportunity at the right at the right moment. So I think it's a it's a sort of model lesson in not overly vilifying certain people, because you just never you never know, like when someone's going to see a particular opportunity and uh, Melvin Dubofsky. Uh, who's who's uh, written along with Warren Van Tine, the definitive biography of Lewis. You know, he said from start to finish, Lewis was interested in power. In the 1920s, he did as ba- about as good as he could, right, in a dying industry uh, with, you know, new welfare capitalism that was sort of like cutting into like union gains. Like it was, you know, it's, it, it was a failure, but, you, you know, you, could, you don't necessarily need to blame him given the conditions. And then in the 1930s, he saw a completely new situation and he took advantage of it, you know, to, because he was interested in his own power. So, um, you know, it was, it's a it's 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 good to see these things as um, contradictory and and mixed rather than than romanticized. I think you're right about that. Um, so uh, the relation between uh, uh, labor policy, labor law and the moment. I mean, I think I think it's best to see those two things, uh, you know, in a sort of dialectical progression, right? It wasn't just that one made possible the other, but that there was a kind of interplay, that there was um, a figuring out of what kind of thing would work for the present moment, given what was going on in, you know, disruption and organizing and whatnot. And so, um, you know, uh, some people, um, you know, if you read uh, Elizabeth Cohen's Making a New Deal or um, or or, you know, Robert Zeger's uh, The CIO, which is really the sort of like key text about the CIO, um, you read them and a lot of importance is accorded to the National Industrial Recovery Act. Right. This um, I mean, what was ultimately a flawed corporatist uh, attempts to rein in, in big business practices, right, um, 
you know, had this one section, section 7A, that said, oh, you know, we recognize the right of workers to form unions of their own choosing. Uh, it wasn't, you know, it didn't really have teeth. It wasn't enforced in such a way that like actually gave most workers unions, um, but it was an inspiration. And again, Lewis, um, Sidney Hillman and David Dubinsky and the garment workers unions, they all said, look, this is an opportunity. We can go out and say uh, for the first time in a while, seemingly, the government is saying, go for it. Yeah, now's the time. And they they took advantage of that, I think, quite, quite well. Um, uh, and so from one angle, you could say, oh, you know, somewhat unintentionally, this policy made possible new union organizing. Well, you know, I mean, some people also say that the, um, you know, what was going on in the early 30s, sort of like unemployment marches, lots of other sort of forms of disruption, the the, the, the sort of nascent beginnings of the sit down strike. It was that disruption. And of course, the radial crisis of the Great Depression that spurred um, Roosevelt to add Section 7A to the Recovery Act. And so, you know, from one angle, it's the organizing and disruption that led to it. From another angle, it's the policy that made possible new organizing. And I think it's it's both, really. It's both, really. It was a dynamic situation. It was a fluid situation. Um, you know, it, so the Wagner Act, uh, which really you know, sanctified collective bargaining. It's still with us today, albeit in, you know, dramatically reduced and constraining form. Um, that was passed in 1935. And almost right away, um, the big companies said, we're not going to obey this. This is ridiculous. This is unconstitutional. Uh, we don't have to, uh, you know, go through this sort of government-led process of recognizing unions. We're just, we're, we're not going to recognize them. Um, they also started a, a whole bunch of new company unions as well. They're like, you know, we can contain this. It's not a big, big, big deal. And so um, it wasn't really until after the the Flint strike and 37 that the Supreme Court finally declares the Wagner Act constitutional. Why was that? You know, uh, Jeremy Brecker, a labor historian who I, I interview on the podcast, um, you know, he says you'd have to get into the minds of the justices to understand why they finally declared the Wagner Act constitutional and very shortly thereafter declared the sit down strike unconstitutional. But it's really difficult to see this broad scale change in um, in the justices opinion without looking to what was going on in the country. You know, after Flint, the sit down strike spread everywhere. Like the disruptiveness was everywhere. And so they looked at the Wagner Act and they said, this is a chance to stabilize things. This is a chance to to, to channel this disrupt disruption into stable collective bargaining and stop all this industrial strife. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's dynamic. I think that uh, the organizing led to the policy and the policy uh, impacted the organizing. And it really wasn't until... Um, it really wasn't until the war, I would say, that things leveled out, you know, with the war labor board and, um, you know, the, the, the CIOs buying into the war efforts and uh, willingness to, you know, sign no strike pledges and all this stuff. It wasn't really until then that things really evened out. And the, the, that dialectic, that sort of dynamic situation between law and organizing, that that sort of stopped and settled into, you know, what we know as the post-war compromise. Yeah, thank you. I, I was about to use the D word myself. Um, uh, uh, 
a word off the views, but actually accurate in this case, in the sense that like you're dealing with situations that are informing each other and to use more modern tolerance and, and feedback with each other. Yeah. Um, uh, and I think with the, with the, with the CIO, you know, you have a, a dialectic of both success and reaction in a lot of the same actions. We talk about the Supreme court. I mean, I, I think people often forget, maybe they don't forget now because it's becoming obvious again, how historically hostile uh, the Supreme court has been to labor both post 1950s and pre 1935 really. I mean, uh, and, um, and I think you're right to point out that part of that is an attempt to de-radicalize labor, like, but it creates space for labor to actually operate and work and do more than just disrupt. Because um, as anyone who's ever talked about trying to turn a, a riot into a political movement, it, uh, disruption happens organically uh, a lot. <laughs> um, but Doing something with disruption is actually kind of hard. Yeah. So, um, uh, I, I think that 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 is a, a key thing to point out about the, the way in which this area operated. Um, I, I, I want to talk a little bit about the war, though, because there's a couple of things that, that happened during the war, and again, I think we can view this almost dialectically and that they're they're opposing impulses so like you have all these concessions to the war effort no strike prejudice some of which were quite unpopular with actual union membership um at the same time you have also partly due to the war um uh the emergence of a more viable popular front with communists because mm -hmm. because of both the communist own dropping of of their uh united front from below strategy which i'm not going to get into my opinion about whether or not i think that was a mistake but it did change conditions on the ground um and their uh and the united states willingness to play more favorably with the soviets because they were allies technically on paper at least so what how did that how did that kind of double movement in two different directions yeah. affect the cio just, just quickly about uh, disruption. Um, sometimes it's spontaneous. Um, mm. Sometimes it happens organically. Um, I, I would say that the key disruptive actions that the CIO took were not at all spontaneous. And mm. one thing that Nelson Lichtenstein, uh, uh, labor historian, emphasized uh, at, at many times during our interview is that he just thinks that no one should use the word spontaneous anymore. He thinks that, no, that, that nothing is spontaneous, that spontaneous is something is a word that you use when, you know, you're, you're coming to a situation without sort of seeing both the organizing lead up to it, as well as the, the particular political economic conditions that led to it. And, you know, I, I think that that's, you know, I mean, sometimes things happen, right? Sometimes things happen that you don't uh, expect to happen. And a lot of the skill of, um, you know, labor, social ju justice, activism organizations comes in finding ways to channel that in the right ways. Um, but a lot of it's not a lot of it's planned. And I think that um, finding finding uh, a room for not just 
you know, blowing up pipelines and this sort of like dramatic, like action kind of thing, finding a place for strategic disruption to think about like, well, what will wound capital in the right way so that it pays attention and it, like we can offer some leverage here. You know, I think that that's a conversation that's sorely in need of resuming today. Um, that that con conversation about strategic illegality and, and, and disruption given the constraints of labor law. Um, it's also worth emphasizing that you know, unions unions come in a variety of forms, obviously, comes in a variety of orientations. But at the end of the day, if a union is not willing to cut a deal, if it's not willing to say, okay, this is this is something that we can settle on so that um, not that the employer is happy about it, but that they are willing to sort of drop their fighting, at least momentarily it doesn't really have any power. And I think that that's the sort of contradiction of the union form. It's been long recognized in like leftist and revolutionary traditions for a long time, right? The union's a contradictory institution. And I think that sometimes we romanticize it and say that, you know, the union is this just this like fighting machine. It's not a fighting machine. It fights when it needs to. You know, there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, like uh, pinbacks from the CIO period in particular. It says like, I don't want to fight, but if I have to, I will. Or I don't want to strike, but if I have to, I will. And I think that that was kind of the ethos of the time, right? They were like, we're going to go out if we need to go out. But the point is not to go out. The point is not to fight. The point is to win. And um, you only win if you can find something to settle on. And I think that's the sort of brilliance of the contract. That's the, that's the way in which uh, temporary moments of disruptive radical consciousness get institutionalized in a particular form that has some sustainability. And there's something worse than a bad union. It's when the union goes away altogether. And traditionally throughout American history, that's what happened. You know, uh, they, they, there were these brilliant moments of upsurge in consciousness and revolutionary and radical activity. And then because of employer opposition and, you know, the willingness to send in the guns, it got it got shut down and the cio moment yeah it was compromised in all sorts of ways but they found a way to institutionalize that they found a way to channel it in the right way and you know we can fault them for that as many new left historians have um but i think that there's a certain inno innovativeness there that's worth appreciating as well um you know the war i think um the war was an opportunity and i think everyone recognized it um many cio leaders Lewis himself, uh, but you know, by the, by the war, uh, it's important to state Lewis was out of the CIO. So Lewis um, Lewis renounced FDR in the lead up to the 1940 election. Uh, he scheduled this much hyped speech where a lot of people said um, he was going to announce the beginning of a labor party. At least, at least that's what a lot of people hoped for. And at that moment, he endorsed Wendell Wilkie, the Republican candidate. Um, this shouldn't have been so surprising, you know, given Lewis's background. He'd been a lifelong Republican. Uh, his relationship with FDR was quite fractious, despite the fact that they, they worked together. Um, uh, and so Lewis and, and the mine workers uh, exit the CIO, and they're actually quite disruptive during the war. They think that um, they think that uh, you know, giving in to no strike pledges and whatnot is a huge mistake. You could argue that they were right about that because they they won big contracts uh, in the process, even though that they they pissed everyone off in, the, in doing so. Um, but the key CIO leaders at that point, Philip Murray, Sidney Hillman in particular, they all said, 
you know, like, what, what do we want? Uh, we want some role in determining government, government policy. And the War Labor Board, on which sat many CIO leaders, was an opportunity to do so, right? I mean, they believed in the cause, first and foremost. They believed in fighting against fascism, and they, they saw that, that threat. And, and constantly, constantly, Lewis Hillman and others would say the best way to fight against what's going on in Germany and Italy is to have a strong labor movement. What was, you know, they, they, they noted that what was happening there involved the wiping out of the labor movement in Italy and Germany. And so they would say, you want to fight against fascism? You want to fight this war? Support organized labor. And so they took that opportunity. And um, you could argue that the ascendant period of the CIO really kind of ended in 1937 after Little mm-hmm. Steel and, you know, the Memorial Day Massacre, the failure of this really magnificent strike at the, at the so-called Little Steel companies. Um, you know, that, that was a moment where Roosevelt kind of abandons organized labor. Uh, they lose the strike. In fact, a lot of CIO people are fired from Republic Steel and other, other Little Steel companies. Um, And then the CIO kind of levels off, right? It had seemed like this giant behemoth. And then after Little Seal, it kind of just levels off and, you know, it's kind of uncertain. Well, you know, what changes the occasion or what changes the circumstances? It's the war, right? It's a lot of people recognizing, you know, we can't have this labor disruptiveness all the time if we're going to have war production. And so Ford finally capitulates to the UAW in 1941. uh, Little Steel finally capitulates to the steel workers in 1941. And so all of a sudden, industry and business, because of the war situation, are aligned in a way that they weren't before. And that that promise of the CIO, the promise to to deliver, um, uh, you know, the end of, of industrial strife through stable collective bargaining, that seemed really appealing during the war when you needed to have, uh, you know, constant productivity. Um And so it was used. And so, you know, CIO membership jumped uh, dramatically during the war. Um, But, you know, it was also a time when things began to be constrained finally. And like I said before, this is when it leveled off. And so many CIO unions agreed to no strike pledges during this time. It helped, of course, that, as you said, the communists were fully involved in the war effort. Um, They, I mean, we we should talk about the communists more, but, uh, you know, they... Uh, were discredited in one respect already by the war because a lot of people were like, like, why are they switching political positions on this? Like, what what's going on here exactly, right? A lot of people, and not just, you know, top CIO brass, like a lot of rank and file workers were like, what what is going on with these communists in my union, right? They like have all these political positions that seem to like flip-flop overnight there's something odd here, but, you know, in as much as they were involved in the war effort, it was, it was all fine temporarily. Um, but it certainly helped that the communists were, were for the war effort. It meant that all those CIO unions where the communists were active and influential, they were fully on, on board. And, you know, a lot of, uh, radical labor historians, Stoughton Lind, perhaps most of all has faulted the communists like pretty severely for having bought into this effort, uh, and not maintain their independence. Um, and so it was a moment again where the CIO made huge gains, but it was uh, it had become a fully, um, you could say, bureaucratized movement at that point. That mm-hmm. that spark, that energy, that uh, ascendance, that dynamism of the early CIO, it was really muted in in the war. And um, there was a huge strike wave right after the war, 1946. Um, 
but it didn't have the kinds of effects that were desired. And in, in any event, it brought on a severe backlash in the form of Taft-Hartley in 1947. And that was really sort of like when when things were muted. Yeah, I, I think it, it, I, emphasizing the feedback loops here is probably a helpful way to understand it because it, because you have this strike wave that's unleashed. It's kind of pent up during the war, right? Like it's yeah. it, it's really kind of back striking, um, and there is also um, the development of a of a popular front with uh, with Wallace uh, that that seems to be concerning a lot of people and you, you know the, the communist leadership here I, I you know i think there is also a kind of secondary fault uh that we kind of have to talk about that um with the communists is that the communists started hiding their positions probably partly in backlash to how all over the place they seemed in the late 1930s yeah um and so when at the state level you started leading up uh, to the beginnings of what would become this, uh, the Red Scare, uh, Red Scare number two or four, depending on how you're counting. Um, it really was easy to accuse a lot of the communist leadership of hiding their positions because they had. Yeah. Um, and so these two kinds kind of seem to play together. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you, though, uh, you know, during this time period, the, the CAO kind of has a... Uh, a dual nature where it's progressive-ish on racial integration and, and kind of seems to learn a little bit even from the IWW on like making sure you integrate black workers to, uh, to some degree confronting anti-black sentiment within the unions itself. Uh, particularly, um, for example, in, in efforts to support the Fair Employment Practices Commission, but they actually, weren't particularly good at dealing with sexual discrimination, particularly during and right after the war. Yeah. Um, how do you think that affected their their viability and popularity at the time? Uh, just just quickly about the communists. So um, they did hold um, their cards close to their chests in a lot of cases, and that didn't help in building trust with other union leaders. Um, you know, it, it's oftentimes the case, though, that, um, you know, there, I mean, it, it's like with any political circles, right? There are people who are the firebrands and the card carrying members, and then there's people who are just sympathetic, right? Like, I'm not part of a lot of organizations that um, I'm quite sympathetic to and talk to people in and whatnot. And, um, you know, in the case of a lot of uh, CIO leaders, there was some fuzziness around this, but you know, it's, it's just in the sort of nature of like how, how political associations work. So Harry Bridges, for instance, who was branded as a communist throughout his life, like, you know, all these like deportation trials and whatnot, like he was, he was the, you know, the, the one of the main guys targeted in the whole, in the whole communist purge. It's not clear that he was ever a member of the communist party, a recent biography of Bridges by Robert Cherney, who I interview for the podcast, um, you know, he comes to the conclusion that like, yeah, I mean, Bridges was friends with all these guys, right? He would consult with them. Uh, he was uh, what was called at the time an influential within the party. And so they would consult him, the, the CP would con consult him about stuff, but he never took orders from anyone and he wasn't part of the party. And so 
the, you know, uh, part of the difficulty there is that, yes, people weren't totally open about things, but that, you know, there was a fluidity that's not often recognized, right? It's like, oh, it's either a communist or not. Well, that's kind of giving in to the whole anti-communist hysteria, this idea that, like, you are, you're either either one of them or, or not one of them. Mm -hmm. um, I, th I think that what, what the communists could be faulted for uh, e even more than the secretiveness was the... Um, was was the way in which they maneuvered within union locals. And that was the thing that pissed off a lot of people, a lot of people. So, you know, again, a, a lot of times, um, you know, you, you, you hear about the, the top CIO brass, Philip Murray in particular, uh, who, you know, in some stories only took the job of the head of, head of the head of the CIO after Lewis left on the condition that he could eventually kick out the communists. So there's that. But a lot of the times in in amongst the rank and file, they'd see the communists, you know, um, you know, uh, do do little tricks with Robert's rules or have like, you know, run slates for union locals and uh, be really, really manipulative about winning elections and controlling things that pissed off a lot of people, you know, like if you're if you're secretive about your politics, that's one thing. But if you are actively you know, uh, you know, exploring different machinations within union locals to take them over and run them. It, that's just going to piss a lot of people off. And so, yeah, it was the secretiveness, but it was it was their craftiness as well. I mean, they're really dedicated. And so like to to they, they convinced themselves that it was worth mm -hmm. doing some kind of shady things to take over certain union locals. But, you know, I mean, you can only do that stuff for so long without people kind of turning on you. So that's the comments. Um, OK, so. Um, uh, there's a few different uh, ways in which to tackle your question about about race and then uh, the way in which uh, the CIO treated gender issues as well. So um, I, I think that in large part due to the influence, the early salutary influence of the communists, um, CIO, orga CIO organizing was remarkably egalitarian and uh, specifically in steel uh, and packing house. There was a recognition that, like, you know, despite the proclivities of rank and file workers and, you know, oftentimes these workers were activated on class, but they had come from, you know, segregated backgrounds and were, still had racial biases. Um, you know, like in those situations, it was oftentimes the CIO leadership convincing people that you have to have black workers in your union. Right. You have to have different um, different people of, uh, you know, there, there were also ethnic divisions at the time that aren't so um intelligible today i guess so you know uh, uh real animus towards hungarians for instance that like i don't think we'd recognize as such a the same problem as it is today um uh there were all sorts of divisions within the workplace and i think in that early period um and specifically because of the influence of communists and a lot of key unions and again steel and packing house in particular um they they were remarkably successful in overcoming those divisions specifically for the point of organizing it would be too you know it's obviously romantic to think that like the white workers and the black workers would go hang out after work or something there was still it was a, still a very segregated society but insofar as they were fighting for union power the cia was really good at overcoming those things and you know it wasn't just in word right they they rhetorically were committed to a racial egalitarianism, but they hired black organizers, right? They understood that like you needed to change the organizing core in order to, to organize successfully. Um, and so, you know, I, I think in this early period, it's really a model for how to overcome racial division, racial and ethnic division. 
that's not true by the time it bureaucratizes. And so if the CIO can be blamed for failures on, on that particular issue, it's in, um, it's in the bureaucratization. And so the steelworkers, for instance, very radical in its uh, origins, uh, not, I mean, so top down in, in its, in its founding, but, um, you know, some of the key sort of communists were uh, were um, very influential within the Steelworkers Organizing Committee. It's estimated that up to 80 people within the organizing core of 200 at the time were part of the Communist Party. Right? They were they were very influential in getting the Steelworkers Organizing Committee off the ground. Well, by the time that they have the United Steelworkers of America, it switches from an organizing committee to a union. Um, you know, the leadership is negotiating contracts that uh that reinstitute racial divisions um that uh you know that affirm seniority practices that also reinforce those divisions and so a lot of the a lot of the um you know pe people who were were very influential in the beginning get shut out and then when the cio bureaucratizes it's not as as uh yeah as as, as good on on the question of race on the question of gender i would say that you know, the CIO was never, there was a, they, it understood in the early days that racial and ethnic division was a clear problem that they had to overcome. That wasn't the case in, in, with gender. They clearly privileged the male breadwinner. Um, they thought of uh, the genesis of, of stable collective bargaining contracts as something that would re-empower um, the head of household uh to you know affirms you know his, the manliness or whatever like his, his place within the family they they were oftentimes very against um this is the cio leaders they were oftentimes very against certain welfare provisions that allowed for someone other than the house of head of household to be uh empowered and so despite the fact that they organized women, so the International Ladies Garment Workers Unions was part of uh, the CIO, despite the fact that they they, they clearly did organize um, women, um, there was never an attempt to break down gendered, uh, the gender divide in the way that there was an attempt to break down the racial divide. And in, in, in a large sense, that was just sort of part of, of, of the moment. I mean, there was no, especially in the top ranks of the CIO, there was no real questioning of that. Whereas the question of race was at the forefront of their minds. Um, you know, oftentimes, especially near the near the end, CIO leaders were actually way out in front of the rank and file in terms of race. And so, you know, Walter Ruther, the head of the United Auto Workers, head of the CIO briefly before it merges with the AFL, um, he uh, he you know funded the um, the March on Washington in 1963. He spoke at it, and a lot of UAW members were pissed off about that. They were they were upset. And George Meany, the head of the AFL-CIO, famously did not support the march and regretted it later. Um, but, there, you know, there, there's a lot in, in a lot of cases, the union leadership was much more progressive than the rank and file and really dragged them along in their organizing and political efforts. Mm. So how much do you think the bureaucratization of the CIO actually uh is solidified by Taff Hartley. Like, like, I mean, clearly it starts way before then. It starts during the war. I mean, yeah. you would probably, even from what we've talked about, you've even probably put it ten years before Taff Hartley. But, yeah. but, um, how much is it like ossified by by Taff Hartley in 1947? Um, 
I, I would say the bureaucratization really comes with the war. That's when everything thing um, stabilizes. And, you know, uh, part of a successful bureaucracy is the ability to contain disruptiveness, right? To find mm -hmm. channels within which um, that energy can go. And um, it was the war that provided them that experience. I mean, the CIO was, the CIO leadership was driving and uh, a car that was out of control throughout the late thirties, right? Like they weren't, they, they, they knew that they weren't totally in charge of things that they were dealing with the dynamic situation and doing their best. I mean, that's, that's again, the contradiction of being a union leader. Like you want to stoke rank and file militancy at the same time that you want to contain it. Um, so, you know, publicly you're, you're telling the workers to go back to work, but privately you're saying, Hey, keep it up because this is the only source of leverage that I have. Um, and in the war, they have a new experience, right? They're able to contain things in, uh, in, in a new way. And they're very successful about doing that. Like, you know, largely because of, um, you know, national sentiment, the desire to like participate in the war effort in a patriotic way. And then after the war, there's a lot of plans. Um, there's a lot of actually fairly ambitious plans and, um, I don't think that that's totally appreciated sometimes. I think a lot of people say, oh, you know, the CIO, they purged the communists in 48, 49, Taft-Hartley, like it was over by then. Um, but, you know, Ruther, John Brophy, a lot of the uh, sort of key people in the CIO, they did have a vision of, I mean, a, a vision that was taken up in the later civil rights movement, for instance, right? A vision of full employment and, um, you know, uh, corporatist or tripartite negotiations where labor had a seat at the table. Um, they were pushing for things. I think the problem though, and the, the thing that Taft Hartley did was to sort of like cut out the legs from under the CIO. So um, it was, it was going to be stationary at that point because Taft Hartley made it really difficult to <clears throat> take up again, those tools that would allow for, broad scale disruption, right? So, um, you know, the recognition strikes, secondary boycotting, like all the things that Taft hardly made illegal. And then, and then a lot of, uh, Richie Zelson, the labor strategist, he says that, um, Taft hardly was designed with a bunch of time bombs sort of embedded within it. Right. And they had, they've gone off at different moments and we didn't often see the ways in which Taft Hartley was going to be so negative. I mean, labor understood at the time that it was a disaster, right? Like everyone was arguing against it, but we didn't always see exactly the ways in which it would play out. And Taft Hartley has been successful over the years at constraining union activity in very particular ways. More immediately, um, its uh, provisions, its sort of anti-communist provisions did impact the CIO fairly immediately. And so after 1947, the CIO begins to be pretty hostile to the communist unions. Um, you know, the United Electrical Workers was a huge union. So aside from the steel workers and the auto workers, I think it was the third largest union in the CIO at its peak. And um, shortly after Taft-Hartley, you know, the writing's on the wall for a lot of the CIO leaders. Um, Philip Murray sort of says, you know, go for it. And the steel workers, the UAW, they begin raiding the UE, you know, clearly stuff 
that is cause for expulsion from a labor federation. And, um, and they, you know, Murray doesn't do anything about it. They allow it to happen. And the UE says, look, like, you know, if you don't deal with this, we're going to leave the CIO. And, um, and they do. The CIO starts the IUE, the International Union of Electrical Radio Machine Workers, and they begin raiding the UE. It's a nasty, nasty battle between these two unions. Um, IUE is, you know, firmly anti-communist. The UE, the UE's leadership, uh, I think it's safe to say, was actually they they were actually members of the Communist Party. So James Matlis and Julius Emspach, you know, most people think that they were pretty tied to the CP. Um, so you know, the fallout there was was pretty pretty ugly, and I think the CIO expelled uh, eight to ten unions altogether. And you know, by by that point any kind of radical energy the CIO had is, is gone and it's a fully bureaucratic institution. And it was, would only be a few years before it remerged with the AFL. Um, I, I think that there's an open question though, about the necessity of those actions. Um, you know, I, I think that most historians would say, you know, that was a huge mistake, right? Just buying into that anti-communist hysteria. I'll, I'll, some, some other people, um, thought that the communists had behaved pretty badly by that point and that they had, that it wasn't just the CIO leadership that to actually contain the rank and file reaction against the communists, they argue that the CIO leadership, like they, they needed to pursue that split. And so, you know, I mean, it's a complicated situation. And I think that I, I would certainly side with, you know, with the idea that um, it was, it was a disaster. It was a disaster for the unions. Uh, it was the workers who lost in that purge. Um, but a lot of things were going on that, you know, led to the communists being discredited by a lot of people. And so that fracture, ugly as it was, to some historians was kind of a necessity that it was always going to happen. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, it, it <clears throat> I guess that leads me to, uh, you know, we have to deal with the the union's um, relationship to the Democratic Party at this point, and yeah. um, it is often blamed on uh, both the communist shift from the Popular Front, I mean, from the United Front from below to the Popular Front, and just the the New Deal coalition in general. How the left got assumed by the by the Democrats. I actually do like to point out that that actually that trajectory started about 30 years prior in a time that it made even less sense with um, the populist party uh, linking up with the left of the Democrats uh, in the progressive movement in the 1900 uh, and liquidating themselves into that. Um, so it, it, it wasn't like the 1930s was the first time that that happened. But the relationship of the Democrats to Taft-Hartley is, is, is something that I think is, is subtle in that um, Truman vetoed it, um, but he also was the first president to invoke it. Yeah. So how did uh, the CIO deal with its relationship to the Democratic Party as it seemed like the the kind of New Deal coalition was at least fraying? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a 
that's a common criticism of the CIO that it bought into the Democratic Party too much, uh, that it was too allied to FDR, certainly. And as you know, perhaps mistaken as uh, Lewis's departure from the CIO was and his support for Wilkie was, at least he understood that the labor movement needed some independence from the Democratic Party if it was going to maintain its power. And one could argue that he was he was right about that. Um, so the relationship with the Democratic Party, I think, is complicated. A lot of new left historians in particular believed that it was a missed opportunity not to invest in a labor party. And again, certainly a lot of people thought that when Lewis was making his big announcement in 1940, that he was announcing the formation of a labor party. Um, most of the historians that I talked to thought that that was a non-starter, that that was just not going to happen at that particular moment, that FDR was always way more popular than the CIO. And, um, you know, what, what, whatever independent political uh, force the CIO could have brought to bear, it would have been nothing compared to the Democratic Party. Um, so that's interesting. I mean, that in retrospect, it seems like kind of a non-starter that most people agree that, that that the Labor Party, if they had pursued it, would have been a mistake. Uh, it, it perhaps would have led to local gains in, in different ways, but certainly at the national level, we're talking about national policy um, and, you know, national support for, for, for labor, uh, that was not that was kind of a non-starter. Um, the 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 concern, of course, is that um, you know the the Democratic Party again becomes that graveyard of social movements, and that uh, in buying into the CIO in, in buying into the Democratic Party, the CIO essentially just capitulated. Um, there's another way to look at that, which I'm more convinced by, which is that what the CIO appreciated about the Democratic Party was not that it was on the side of labor but simply that it wouldn't send in the guns. I think that's the sort of key key thing and something that I'm broadly convinced by, that, that it's really difficult for unions to have much success if they're going to be met with straightforward repression as supported by the government business alliance. It's a really difficult thing to confront. And traditionally, that's that's been the cause of failure, right? When brutal repression has entered the scene. And what happened in the late 30s and what made possible the CIO's success was not the fact that FDR was um, rhetorically for unions. He was, and that helped, certainly. But the fact that people like Governor Frank Murphy in Michigan wouldn't send in the National Guard. And um, I think that that's what the CIO appreciated about the Democratic Party, that these were people who, yeah, I mean, they were full of it at one in one sense. Um, they were not they were not friends of labor uh, in the sense that you would hope for politicians to be, but they at least were going to neutralize that traditional government business alliance, and that's what they saw in the Democratic Party at the time. And I kind of think that they were right to do that. And you know, I, I think that part of the difficulty with the discussion about the Democratic Party is that the left or labor wants it wants to, you know, po point out the disjunctions between all these different entities. And the Democratic Party is going to be what the Democratic Party is. The question for labor is whether it's going to be whether it's going to be neutral at the correct times. And I think that that's a that's a much more sober approach to the Democratic Party than than saying, oh, 
this this liberal X, Y, or Z is a failure because of this or that. Yeah, of course, it's they're Democrats. But the question is like whether they're going to not do the thing that's traditionally done at the correct moments. And that's what the CIO saw in the Democratic Party. And as much as that's the case, I think that they were correct to see it. I guess my, my this is probably going to be my last question, but it, it is one about historiography of the labor movement. So how much of our understanding of labor is actually read through the political and cultural matrices of the times that we are writing about labor. So a lot of the a lot of the big studies of the 1930s are written in the 1960s, and it and the the nuances of the relationship to the Democrats, uh, for example. Well, that makes a lot of sense to focus on uh, or, or to be really mad about in 1968. Um, and it also makes sense in the 1970s when you look at how much of, for example, the discretionary budget of unions are going into lobbying specifically the Democratic Party. Um, whereas from the standpoint of today, um, we might be reading both our hopes and our fears about the Democrats, you know, into their our understanding of the 1930s too, because today we have, um, a Democratic Party, which at one section can't get the PRO Act through, has made promises to labor explicitly that it's not been able to uh, or not wanted to, depending on who you who you trust, uh, to deliver on. At the same time, we actually have seen reforms that are that are favorable to labor for the first time in, I don't know, 40 years. So it's it, it, it seems like that might also flavor our view now. So how much do you think the, the historiography of the historians doing the labor history is actually affecting our understanding of that history? That's that's my big question. Oh, it, it's huge. And I think that the present moment is actually one for better understanding that than mm. uh, in the 1960s. Um, Ruth Milkman, who's a professor of sociology at CUNY, she was very explicit about this she said when she was in graduate school it was really funny to see the kinds of things that were being written things that look you know radically out of touch today real uh, real uh, incisive critiques of big labor and whatnot uh, you know one of those strange points of consonance between the new left and the emerging right um and also the fact that there was almost nothing written at that time about the united Steelworkers, which was at that time a huge union one of the most powerful in the country, you know, new left labor historians just didn't really care. Like they were interested in the UAW, UE, more democratic unions with these, you know, heroic rank and file stories. And so there was a non-recognition of a huge part of what made the CIO successful um, because of the romanticization of certain things about the CIO, but not, not others. At present, I think that we're in a better position to sort of appreciate the the CIO, to, to sort of see it with sober senses and to see where it failed, where the political economic context differs from the present in such a way that the, the lessons there are non-applicable to the present, but also to appreciate its real gains, to appreciate the fact that it's, again, really the one time in American history where you can say they won. They won very decisively, and it resulted in a kind of revolution in working class living standards. Uh, 
Jack Metzger, who wrote a book about steel, you know, at the beginning talked about uh, uh, whether or not that moment was a revolutionary one or not. He says, you know, you compare what it was like growing up in a steelworker's family before the CIO, and then you look at the living standards after the CIO, and he says, if this isn't revolution, I don't know what is. Um, so it's a, it's a time when, when they won, and I think that we should appreciate that. I mean, I think that the left has a tendency to romanticize the fights, the fights that we can get in against the bosses. And that's great, and that's necessary, but we need to prioritize winning. And that's what the CIO did, I think, uh, laudably. I think that's a, a good point to uh, to end on. And, and, and I think maybe because we're in a moment where uh, there's both labor militancy, real labor militancy for the first time. Uh, well, I've, it's been kind of building actually for about 15 years, but um, but interestingly and paradoxically, it is not translating into labor density at all, um, at least unless the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics stats that we were talking about at the beginning of the show are radically different than I predict they're going to be. Um, and I, I think that does leave us in a kind of a, a lurch. And, and one of the things that, you know, I come out of the, the very far left and I've studied labor for a long time and I'm a union rep, et cetera, et cetera. I've done the stuff you're supposed to do. Um, and you go in and you look at the core his heroic periods, particularly if you're one of those people who came up in the nineties, who was actually very informed by the sixties and seventies historiography. And you like look at you know the IWW, but then you have to conclude like, well, they lost though, like, and they didn't lose a little; they lost bad. Um, and then you you know you look at um, the you know the, the real revolution in working class life. You know it is undone, but it does actually take a remarkably long time to undo. I mean, in, in some sense, yeah. um, considering how fast it was built, like. If you if you look at how those labor gains were made basically in four years and it and it took about 35 to claw them back in about, you know, during the 1950s, one of the one of the, the paradoxical things is, you know, the the, the debt we can see where the labor movement is being destroyed, but they also look to be they still look to be winning in terms of gains, actually, as far as what they want during that moment and that is a paradox that we often forget now you know um that that like well i mean people probably weren't that worried because labor really did have even during the eisenhower administration a seat at the table um now that is all called back by the early 70s but it takes the early 70s to do it um and so I do think looking at that fairly objectively is important. But, you know, I, I like you think we have to look at it almost to use that dirty D word again, dialectically, in so much that you start seeing the 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 success and failures being intimately related, that you cannot actually just parse them out on a simple like, oh, well. If the AF, if the uh, the the CIO never rejoined with the AFL, or if the CIO hadn't bureaucratized during the war, and you're like, well, what would they have done? 
you know, and also yeah. they did it for reasons that were actually smart. Similarly, we talked about the communists. A lot of the things that undo the communists, they were actually doing, I would say, not because they were sneaky conspirators, but because they were rationally concerned about people responding to them. And the people responding to them weren't being irrational because the communists have been up to some shenanigans. Yeah. So, like, it, it's, you know, when you look at it more that way, maybe you can form a more realistic systemic uh, view. Although I will say it, it does make me feel like the next five to 10 years are pretty do or die for the U.S. labor movement. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, I don't find dialectic to be a bad, a dirty word. I guess if you're using a lot of cocaine, maybe it can be, but otherwise it's fine. Um, on the on the question of historiography, you know, it's a, it's a good one. And I, I do think that we're in a more sober moment for the appreciation of the CIO. It's sort of part of why I wanted to do the podcast is to bring on, well, I mean, part of it was just to capture the voices of um, an elder generation of labor historians uh, who you don't hear from much anymore. And that was a, that was a huge, you know, get, I think, to, to be talked to, be talking to people like Melvin Dubofsky and David Brody and whatnot. Um, but, but part of it is I think that we can, you know, we're, we're past that sixties new left moment. That's overly critical of the CIO and in a variety of ways and can appreciate its gains much more. I think actually, you know, we're not yet at the moment where we can appreciate with sober senses that post-war period and the miscues and also successes of what happened then. And, um, you know, I think a reckoning there is, uh, is quite necessary too, that, you know, uh, yes, it was bureaucracy in a lot of ways. Uh, yes, they had um, lost that dynamism of the early period, but there were good reasons for pursuing things as they did and uh, a broader appreciation for for that is necessary. There's a there's a great book, um, uh, David Brody's uh, Workers in Industrial America, where he, he looks at this. He, he devotes two chapters to what he calls the uses of power, the uses of power. And what what the CIO and what you know labor leaders and what progressive Democrats did at this moment, where for the first time they were dealing with a complete anomaly in American life, which is that uh, you know corporate power was limited, not reined in, but limited in ways that certain things were possible. You know, it's certainly not the present moment, but I think soberly understanding what they did right and what they did wrong, that's that's still to be done as well. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Ben. People should check out your podcast, Organi uh, Organizing the Unorganized, uh, over at Jacobin Radio. Um, if you are to look it up, there's another podcast called Organizing the Unorganized. Uh, it's about organizing your closet. So um, <laughs> uh, uh, look up the Jacobin Radio one. <laughs> That's what the labor movement is in competition with today, movements for self-care. <laughs> All right. All right. That was an excellent interview. Thanks again for being here, Ben, and thank you, Varn. Yeah, thanks and, for having uh, me. Yeah. We are out. <laughs>